Well, good morning. It is a joy to see you guys. If you have your Bibles, open to Judges chapter 13, Judges 13. Uh, As you guys are turning there, this is our last Sunday in the book of Judges. So if you guys have enjoyed it, I hope you have. It's been a a fun story and a fun book to walk through. We're going to finish up this morning looking at a familiar character for many, uh, a byword at times for some, but a guy named Samson. Judges 13. As you guys are turning there, Judges 13, I'll I'll tell you guys, I, I find... Uh, especially looking at a passage like this to kind of set it up, I, I think as a culture we have a fascination with destruction. Uh, we love to see the more vivid the destruction, the more graphic the destruction, the better, and we have a tendency to not be able to look away. Uh, for you guys, last night uh, it was amazing to see our Aggies go 4-0. Uh, as, as exciting as it was to see the Arkansas fans in the stand and the look on their face of utter devastation, I wanted to just pause or rewind and watch again, right? Uh, it was just fun to see us be victorious, but there's also a part of me, as sick as it may be, that wanted to just see the devastation upon their face. Uh, similarly uh, speaking, I, I had a friend in college who asked out a girl at one point, and he faced romantic devastation as literally the girl put her hands on her f- head and said, are you kidding me? <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't recover from those moments. Now, we've told that story as, as roommates probably like a hundred times because it's absolutely hilarious. We, we can't look away from such devastation, even when it comes to someone we love, right? Um, I'll tell you guys, I got to spend, my wife and I got to spend a couple years in East Asia, and uh, one of the things that we got to do there was a uh, wildfire, or wildfire, a wildlife safari park, and one of the things you could do at this place, and for you guys who may be like PETA fans or protect animals' rights, this is going to be awful for you, but you could purchase a live chicken and you could zip line it or you could uh, kind of zip tie it to a a live zip line that would take the chicken across a den of cheetahs all right <laughs> and the cheetah would would leap up and tear the chicken down all right not before i've lost all respect let me get it down all right i like i can't tell you not me of course but my friends like i cannot tell you how many live chickens were purchased that day all right as a culture, we just have a fascination with destruction and devastation. We want to see it. Uh, and and as, as tragic as you may pull up on a, uh, on a traffic accident, and, and, and at least in our family, we've tra- trained our kids that we pray when we pull up on a traffic accident, but there's a human condition why every, the tra- all the traffic slows and everyone wants to rubberneck to see what happened. There is in something in us, whether it's dark or what, but there's something in us that has this obsession with devastation and destruction and has a tendency and an inability to look away. Well, I think in our story here in Judges, this character named Samson, I think God is going to play into that tendency in all of us because we're going to see one of the most vivid, one of the most colorful, one of the most graphic, complete undoing of an individual as you're going to find anywhere in your Bible. In fact, we're going to get four chapters to see this guy's life, and we're going to see how it gets torn to threads by the end of it. And what is intending, I think what God intends to do through the story of Judges is draw us in, because there is something that we want to be shocked and awed, and we're going to see that in this guy's life. But I think the point of that also is to teach us how to avoid such a scenario. And so for some of you guys who know Samson's story, you know this is a guy who's going to fall prey to sexual temptation and that falling prey to that sin is going to completely unravel his life. And so for those of you who are familiar with that or for those of you who hear sexual temptation, you begin to immediately throw some walls up. I'm going to kind of challenge you guys that I think this story is not only about sexual temptation. But there's going to be a reality about sin in this story and, and, and how it embraces us, how it engages us, how it lures us in, and what it wants to do in our lives that is not just about sexual sin, but about sin in any area of our life and what sin wants to do. 
The story of Samson is not just for those that struggle with sexual sins, but it's for all of us who struggle with some kind of sin when no one's paying attention. The story of Samson is, reveals and is about all of us. In fact, Samson, as we kind of wrap up our series in the book of Judges, Samson is a wonderful representative of this entire book, the book of Judges. Samson is going to be one that we see who thinks he's right in his own eyes, just like everyone in the book of Judges thinks, but what we're going to find out is they're not right at all. In fact, if you guys remember when we kicked off the book of Judges, at the end of the book of Judges, it talked about everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That very phrase we're going to see applied to Samson in the area of lust this morning. We're going to see as he describes a woman who was right in his eyes. Again, it's not just about sexual sin. What we're going to see in Samson, there's an element of Samson in every single one of us that has a tendency to think that we're right in our own eyes. We live in a postmodern culture that wants to evaluate experience and put uh, the ability to choose for our lives whatever we want them to be. That's what postmodernism is all about. You validate your own experience. You choose what is right for you. You do what is right in your own eyes. The story of Samson is going to be an anecdote as to what happens when you pursue that kind of life, what ends up unraveling and unfolding. Some of us know the story of Samson. I think what's really interesting, what's maybe even ironic that many of us don't know is that Samson's story begins unlike any other judge in the book of Judges, all right? Samson's going to have a background. We were looking at the backgrounds of two men this past week. Uh, last week, we looked at Jephthah. The week before, we looked at Abimelech, and we saw two guys who had backgrounds that you're going to see could not be more different than Samson. Uh, I'm going to show you three different things about Samson. The first is that Samson had an unparalleled potential, Potential may not matter much till you act on it, but Samson had everything going in the right direction for him. Notice as chapter 13 opens up, verse 1, notice what we find out about Samson and his beginning. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, uh, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and you will give birth to a son. Uh, chapter 13 will open up. We're going to find that that son is Samson. And so as we begin to look at the potential or the background of Samson, if you guys remember, uh, Abimelech and Jephthah were both the sons of concubines and prostitutes. Compared and contrasted to those two guys, we get Samson and we get an angel showing up announcing this guy's birth. This guy is incredibly different than compared to all the other judges that we see in the book of Judges. Unparalleled potential. Who else gets an angel showing up saying, hey, mom and dad, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have a son to be born. And notice how the angel describes this son, verse 3. Or verse 4, Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Here you get a judge that's going to be risen up, and an angel comes to announce his birth, and the angel says this one is going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be one who's going to be set apart for a holy purpose. So don't drink wine. Don't do certain common things, because this child of yours is going to be unique and special. He's going to have an upbringing. He's going to have a birth announcement that is unlike any other judge of the book of Judges. And he's going to have a set of parents that are unlike any other parents of a judge that will be risen up as any that we see in the book of Judges. Notice what these parents do, verse 8. And notice what they say to the angel. Then Manoah, the father, entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who's to be born. The parents are saying to the angel, hey, will you please come instruct us more? They position themselves in a submissive posture and stance and they say, hey, will you tell us what you want this child to be? 
Notice also verse 12. Notice what the text tells us about these parents. Verse 12. Uh, Manoah, the father again says, Now, when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? You have parents here that realize an angel has come to announce the birth of their son and their whole posture. Those that have been looking for a child, desperately waiting for a child, they're going to finally get a child and their instinct is not to grab hold of it, of him, but to have open hands and say, Lord, what is it you want for this kiddo? (laughs) Samson gets a birth announcement. He gets a Nazarite identification and he gets a lineage of a set of parents that are unlike any other upbringing of any judge in the book of Judges. Unparalleled potential. For all those that like to talk about nature versus nurture, he's got both on his side. (laughs) He's got nature that the angels are prophesying of. He's got parents that provide an environment and a nurture that sets him up to be all that God could have intended him to be. He has everything going for him. He has all the potential in the world. It's very rare that sometimes such high potential, such hype will deliver on itself. Uh, Samson will be no different. Uh, some of you guys might have uh, paid attention to uh, Ryan Adams' album that came out, uh, 1989, an uh, album of covers of T-Swift songs. I had a little bit of hype about it, a little bit of excitement, and man, just delivered this week. I was like, this is amazing, all right? I don't know if any of you guys else like, lost all focus on the week, all right? Or maybe you're judging me for my musical taste, okay? But that was hype that delivered, okay? That's not Samson. Samson is going to be hype that doesn't deliver, all right? Uh, And what you're going to see really, I think one of the first things you're going to see from Samson is this, that for many of us that maybe have all kinds of different spiritual heritages, maybe you have a heritage in which your parents brought you to church, your parents prayed for you every day, your parents longed for you to walk with the Lord. Even if you had that, it doesn't determine spiritual strength. It doesn't determine a spiritual life. For some of you who had that, I'd encourage you to thank God for your spiritual heritage, but do not rely on it. Some of you maybe showed up here at Texas A&M or at Blinn and are walking with God in large part to an entrustment of faith that your parents, grandparents, uh, church, youth group uh, leaders invested in you, and that is amazing, and that is an incredible blessing. Samson's going to have all that, but it will not guarantee that he's going to walk with the Lord for a lifetime. Uh, we say this to you guys a lot. Our hope for you guys isn't just that you'd walk with the Lord in college, but you'd walk with the Lord for a lifetime. Samson gets the greatest of head starts, but he won't at all deliver on it. And it's not just that Samson has unparalleled potential, but he's also got uh, unmatched power. Samson's name literally means one of strength. In verse uh, 25 of chapter 13, notice the text tells us that, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in, and he names a bunch of cities that, again, I can't pronounce, okay? But the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson and is going to empower him and strengthen him to do things that, he, that no one else can do. In fact, you're going to see a series of incidents that will unfold in chapters 14 and 15 that highlight his strength almost as proofs of his power. Notice chapter 14, verse 5. Notice what happens here. Uh, then Samson went down to Timnah with, a fa- with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. <laughs> it's a man's man, right? Lion out of nowhere and just like animal versus man, right? I mean, he just tears the lion to smithereens with his bare hands, right? Amazing, okay? Uh, And if that wasn't enough, we get further proofs in the the latter part of chapter 14. Chapter 14, Samson's going to be at a wedding feast, his own wedding celebration prior to the actual wedding. And in that moment, he makes a riddle with a bunch of the wedding guests. And because of his fiance who betrays him, we'll look at this in a minute, uh, gives the answer to the riddle away to the wedding guests. Samson's going to lose a bet. He's going to have to provide clothing for 30 different of the wedding guests. He doesn't have it. 
So what he's going to do in chapter 14 is that he's going to go to a town nearby and he's going to kill 30 Philistines all by himself. He's going to take their clothes and he's going to come back to his wedding, okay? Crazy power, okay, crazy power. If that's not enough, my favorite part of here uh, in terms of his power is in chapter 15, notice verse 15, notice what he does. Not 30 this time, uh, and not with his bare hands this time, but verse 15. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Where he found it, I don't know. It's just lying around. He just grabbed a, do- a, a jawbone of a donkey. And so he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. <laughs> okay. Like, what is this, like, Gladiator or Braveheart or, like, 300, whatever, like, the crazy powerful dude is, right? This is, like, that dude on steroids, okay? Jawbone of a donkey kills a thousand, all right? I think he's got a little bit of strength to him. I wouldn't want to meet him in a dark alley and be on the wrong side of his fight, right? The dude is legit. If anyone probably would have thought they were invincible, it would have been him. He can kill a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey. Unmatched power. Unmatched power. Unparalleled potential. This guy has everything going for him. Everything. He's got the upbringing that all of us would have longed for. He's got capabilities and giftings that match no one else. Unmatched gifting. I think the second thing that we learn from Samson is that uh, thank God for whatever spiritual gifts you have, but do not rely on them. However God's gifted you, whatever capabilities, personality, capacity he's given you, thank the Lord for it, but do not rely on those things. Spiritual strength is not determined by spiritual heritage. Spiritual strength is not determined by spiritual gifting. Spiritual strength is not determined by uh, personality or ability or capacity. Those things are wonderful things we can thank God for, but they do not determine our strength. And the reason we learned that is because the one who seemed like he would be the most invincible is going to fall prey to the very thing that every single one of us can fall prey to as well. Because this guy has an unreliable character. Unreliable character. Notice chapter 16, and this is where Samson's story takes a turn. This is where it takes a downward turn. This is the part of the story that we are all so familiar with. Actually, pick it up in chapter 14, verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines, the very Philistines he was supposed to conquer, the very Philistines he was supposed to deliver his people from. He sees a woman from the Philistines, and he came back, and he told his mom and dad, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. (laughs) Just imagine him like, the chest beating like a caveman, right? She pleases me. Get her, all right? Uh, Verse 3, Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our own people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. (laughs) Caveman, Samson speaking, right? She looks good to me. Uh, Literally, the Hebrew there is, She is right in my eyes. Which is not just about a lust issue in his life, but it it is a key point that highlights the bigger issue in the book of Judges, which is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. She looks right in his eye. He thinks this is permissible. He thinks he can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever is right in his eye, and he's going to move towards it. And it's the first issue that we get. And so what's going to happen is that he's got a problem that every single one of us have. And I want you not just to see the problem, but I want you to see the progression. Because what's going to happen in Samson's life is that he's going to blow through four different roadblocks that I think every single one of us can blow through. And I want to show you from chapters 14 and 16 what these roadblocks are because they're absolutely imperative and they're helpful for you and me. The first roadblock that Samson's going to blow right past is the command of God. God had told the Israelites, do not marry women from foreign nations. 
This is the judge who's supposed to deliver the nation of Israel from their enemies, i.e. the Philistines, okay? And all of a sudden he looks across what would have been, should have been a battlefield at a foreign nation and he goes, her, I like her, she's pretty, I want to marry her, right? He's going to blow through the first thing that is a roadblock for every single one of us and that's the command of God. When God has said, here is what is right, whether you see it in your eye or not, whether your feelings and your experience validate or not, here is what's right. And Samson blows right past that. Not only does he blow right past the command of God, but the second thing that he blows past is the counsel of God's people. Notice verse 3 again of chapter 14. What do his parents say? Is there no woman among the daughters of our relatives or among our own people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? The second roadblock that God put in Samson's life was the people of God, who acted as a counsel and as a mirror to the commands of God. It said, no, no, Samson, this is not God's best. Don't blow past this roadblock. Don't hurdle it like an Olympic hurdler. Slow down. You're blowing past a roadblock that is intended to protect you and provide for you. Do not blow past it. He's going to blow past that one. And then God puts a third roadblock in his life, which are the circumstances of life. Verse 5, we looked at this as a proof of his power. But a lion comes out of nowhere for real, right? On his pathway to go pursue this woman, it is that not some sense of foreboding, right? You know, lying out of nowhere. I'm thinking probably something's wrong in my life, right? All right, he's going to kill the lion, and it's not just a innocent, random circumstance. But when he kills a lion with his bare hands as a Nazarite, he should have been forced because he would have been unclean. He should have been forced to return home to be made clean again. And so when he kills this lion with his bare hands and then does not return home, he's actually blowing through yet another roadblock that God has erected for him to slow down and to cease and desist. And he blows right past it. Not only does he blow right past it, but the text in chapter 14 tells us that uh, when he comes back by the dead lion, as he travels back at one point, he comes back by the dead lion, and this time out of nowhere, there's honey in the dead lion, because that happens, right? Honey, out of a dead lion. No, right? And he's like, I'm hungry. So he grabs the honey, scrapes it out of the dead, uncooked carcass, okay, and eats the honey, which would have further defiled him. And then he gives it to his parents who unwittingly don't know where it came from, and he defiles his own parents as well. This guy's not moving in a good direction. (laughs) He's defiling himself. He's now defiling those that are caught up in his company as well as he blows past one roadblock after another. Um, Thought about illustrations of dead razorbacks, but I thought we'll just move past that this morning, okay? Giggum, right? Exactly, okay. Uh, But so he blows right past that. And then lastly, the last uh, thing that he blows past is the crushing of pain. Yet another roadblock that was intended to have him stop to cease and desist. And pain comes in his life. In this case, he's going to tell a riddle, which I mentioned a minute ago, and the riddle will go south. His fiance will betray him. She gives away the riddle. He's going to be out by the time chapter 14 ends. He's going to be out of money. He's going to be out of integrity. He's going to be out of a wedding party. And he's going to run away because he's hurt and he's sad. And when he comes back, the bride's father gave the daughter that he was going to marry to one of his wedding party. (laughs) Chapter 14 doesn't go very well for Samson. Not at all. This guy is hurt. This guy is experiencing incredible pain. The question is, at this point in time, does he draw back to the Lord or does he just keep marching to do whatever he wants? In God's kindness, in God's mercy, and in God's patience, he continues to erect one roadblock after another for Samson to slow him down, for him to realize that what he thinks is right in his own eyes is not right. I want to ask you this morning, in the midst of your own life, 
do you find yourself blowing past these roadblocks? Maybe you don't even know what the commands of God are. Or maybe you don't even have God's people that you can have counsel to. If you find yourself in that spot, I think one of the greatest things that you can do as you walk away from this morning is to simply jump into a Bible study here at Grace. If you're a freshman, we have Lost Bible Studies, our freshman Bible study deal. If you're an upperclassman, I'd love to encourage you to jump into one of our grow groups, our Colossians Bible Studies. It would be a great chance to find community and to know the Word of God. Because if you don't know the commands of God and you don't know the people of God, then the only roadblocks that you have is you think that you're right in your own eyes are going to be the circumstances of life that are hard to interpret and pain. There's the school of hard knocks, and that's the last two, and you don't want to be a part of that school if you can avoid it, which is by knowing the commands of God and knowing the people of God and seeking their counsel. I don't know where you are this morning. If you find yourself in places where no one knows, but you're blowing past roadblock after roadblock. And the point of Judges 16 and the point of where the book of Judges is going to go is to show you and I what happens in our lives if we keep going. If we blow past these four roadblocks and we decide our life is going to be what we want it to be and we think we are right in our own eyes, what's going to happen? That's Judges chapter 16. That's what's going to happen at the end of Samson's life. And so if you have Judges 16 open, look at verse 4, where you're going to see what happens when Samson keeps going. And what Judges chapter 16 is meant to be is a colorful, graphic, vivid devastation that will make you rubberneck and will make you unable to look away so that you can learn from it, so that you can avoid it. If you come up on an icy highway and there are cars thrown everywhere, you're like, what in the world happened? And how in the world do I get my car under control so I don't end up in a ditch? That's what Judges 16 is, a dude in a ditch, and it causes you to slow down to avoid what got him caught up and in a ditch. All right, That's what Judges 16 is meant to do for us. Notice what happens. Judges 16, verse 4. This is where our story goes. After this, it came about that he loved a woman, now a different woman, because he lost a woman that he loved from the Philistines in 14, and now he's on to a new woman who's also a pagan, and this time probably a temple prostitute, in a place called the Valley of Sarek. And so he loved a woman in the Valley of Sarek whose name was Delilah. Let me say a couple things. One, Delilah is not a comment that women are evil, okay? What Delilah is is a personification of sin and evil. And what Delilah will do is what sin will do to every single one of us. And the second thing I want you guys to see is that the Valley of Sarek would be like an ancient modern-day Vegas. Uh, that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but the reality is you go to Vegas if you want something shady, all right? And Samson has gone to the Philistine version of Vegas for something shady. Uh, one time my wife and I traveled to Thailand, got out of the airport in Thailand, and there was a dude who had a shirt on and said, good guys go to heaven and bad guys go to another city that I won't name, but it was in Thailand, all right? There are certain cities that have reputations for if you want something shady, that's where you go. That's exactly what was happening here in Samson's life in the Valley of Sarek. This is Vegas, all right? This is a shady place in Thailand, all right? This is a place you only go when there's a red light district and something bad's going to happen, all right? That's where Samson is. This isn't by coincidence. This isn't by happen chance. He's gone there, gone there intentionally, and he's fallen in love with a temple prostitute. What I want you guys to see as we jump through here is really verses 5 and 6, that when we blow through the roadblocks that God has put, here's what sin wants to do in our life. Verse 5 and 6, and notice what Delilah says she wants to do in Samson's life. She's honest about it. Verse 5, the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him, which she was pretty good at doing, and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him that we may bind him to afflict him. 
And then, we'll give you, then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That's some serious bling that they each were going to give her. But what do they want to do? What is Delilah going to become a vehicle for these lords of the Philistines to do? To bind him and to afflict him. I'm not trying to be heavy this morning, but I, I want you to be honest. I want you to see clearly sin's goal in your life is to hoodwink you at first, but ultimately what it wants to do is bind you and afflict you. It doesn't want to kill you. It wants to torture you. That's exactly what's going to happen to Samson. That's the point of the story. That when we blow through these roadblocks, what's going to happen is that sin is going to try to bind us and afflict us and frankly, not kill us, but torture us. That's what sin ultimately wants to do. That's what Judges is trying to show us. I can notice not just the goal of sin, here's sin's progression, but notice the methods of sin. The first thing that sin will do in our lives is that it will exploit your weakness. Uh, again, she says uh, to him in verse 6, So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound to afflict you. What Delilah is trying to do is show me where you're weak. What is your weakness so that we can exploit it? And the reality is I think we all know what his weakness is, right? That's why she's there, why she's talking to him. <laughs> his weakness is obvious in some ways. It's her. It's women. Beautiful women. And he's in trouble. And he's already in trouble. All right. Uh, it's been said before that uh, our private sins are open scandals in the halls of hell. But Satan knows exactly what your weaknesses are. Satan's school that knowing how to exactly come at you, and he knows where you're vulnerable, and he knows how to come at you. When you're discouraged, when you're tired, when you're down, when you're stressed, every single one of us is wired differently, and we all respond differently to temptation, but there are certain open doors, certain chinks in our armor and the enemy knows those, and they try to exploit the weakness. And so they come at Samson as Samson is most weak at. So I'm just going to be about his hair in a minute. It's going to be about women. And so that's where the enemy comes with women. It comes at Samson uh, to exploit his weakness. And the second thing that's going to happen is uh, going to provide him some enjoyment. Let's be honest. Delilah was enjoyable to him. Sin is enjoyable for a time. That's why Hebrews will talk about the passing pleasures of sin. That, that it's almost like a drug dealer first time free but next time will cost you, all right? There is a allure of sin. There is an initial enjoyment of sin, but on the backside of it is when the weight comes and the cost comes and we don't see it at first. She's going to entice him as only she can do and he will be drawn in by the allure and the excitement until the third thing that happens is that this happens, that his senses are going to be blinded. It's fascinating watching the dialogue here between Samson and Delilah. Some of you guys know the story. I'm going to read a piece of it here for you guys, but it's fascinating to watch this dialogue. Verse 7, Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been dried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. And then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had been lying in wait in an inner room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of toe snaps when it touches fire, so his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me, and you have told me lies. Now please tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me tightly with new ropes, which have not been used, then I will become weak and be like any other man. And so Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them, and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. For the men were lying in wait in the inner room, but he snapped the ropes with his arms like a thread. This dialogue goes over and over and over again. He gives her one thing. It proves not to be true. He's toying with her. She's toying with him. And that's what sin does to us. 
We think we can control it. We think we can toy with it. We think we are in control. And the entire time, what sin is doing is simply waiting us out. It will wait you out. Delilah is patient. She just keeps hanging in there. She's not in a hurry. Uh, Notice uh, verse 16. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. They were doing this for a while. She wasn't impatient. She wasn't rushing it. She just knew at some point in time he would eventually fold. I think it's really interesting the story in which Satan tries to tempt Jesus when uh, Satan finally leaves and the temptation's over. Uh, The text says that he waited till an opportune time. Sin often isn't in a hurry. Sin often just waits. Waits us out until we finally give in and then it moves in and it moves in and it moves in to control us. Um... One of my favorite illustrations is of the Venus flytrap that allures a scent in and a fly comes in. And as the fly comes in, it comes into the bulb, which the inside of the bulb is painted blue like the sky. So as that fly comes in into the bulb, it is, it's over by that point in time. But at that point in time, the fly has no idea that it's in a Venus flytrap bulb because as it looks up, what it sees is the sky. There's no difference. That what sin does, like a Venus flytrap, is it disorients our senses so that we are in trouble before we ever know we're in trouble. How does Samson not know this woman is a hag? How does he not know that her intent is absolutely malicious? How does he not wake up? He's blinded. He's completely blinded, and she is just going to wait him out because eventually he will give out. In verse 17, So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. And if I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up at once, for he has told me all that is in his heart. And then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, and she made him sleep on her knees. He's so arrogant, and he's so confident. Made him sleep on his knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his hair. And then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know the Lord had departed from him. The very last Nazarite vow that he breaks is a shaving of his head. And as that occurs, the last remaining thread of his character is gone. And what truly provides strength was not his muscles, but it was his commitment and character before the Lord. And finally, that last vow is broken. There's no character left and his strength fades and the spirit leaves. And then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. He's at first figuratively blind, and then he becomes literally blind. And they brought him out, to, out down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the prison. They put him in captivity, they make him a prisoner, and then he's going to become entertainment for them. Notice verse 22. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it was shaved off. And now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. For they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. And so it happened when they were in high spirits, they're tipsy, they're having a great time, that they said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. Isn't that amazing? The Philistines captivate him, they imprison him, they afflict him, they gouge his eyes out, and then they submit him to physical labor, and then they call him out in the midst of his pain to be the very object of their party. 
the last thing that sin will do is it will party at your pain. That's what sin wants to do. That when we blow through the roadblocks God has put up in his kindness, what sin will do is it will torture, it will afflict, it will consume us, not kill us usually, but imprison us to such an extent that we simply become party fodder for sin and for hell. (laughs) Judges 16 is a shock and awe moment. It's not a light, fluffy, feel-good moment. But it's absolutely essential that you and I realize this is where sin wants to take every single one of us and our weaknesses are different and where sin comes at us is all different. But we just get the sense of, oh, we can manage it, we can control it, and nothing could be farther from the truth. A few years ago, my wife and I took our kids and we were vacationing in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and we were up and we were looking for wildlife and we so desperately wanted to see some wildlife. And so finally, at one point, we go to a lunch place and we actually see a moose. We're freaking out. At this point, our daughter Caroline is like literally about two, okay? So she's really, really tiny. And so I, like an unsuspecting, idiotic tourist, I take her, my two-year-old, on my shoulders, and I start walking with the other tourists, and we surround the moose, all right? And we just keep getting closer and closer, and there's this like, oh my gosh, we are so close to a moose. This is amazing, right? My parents are up at this lunch place taking pictures, all right? I, at one point, literally, we get about probably 30 yards from the moose, and other tourists have surrounded, obviously, people who don't camp and who aren't nature's people, all right, because we're all idiots, all right, that are getting this close. We get absolutely 30 yards from the moose, and we begin to create almost a surrounding of it. There's a, there's a cabin, and then the rest of us flank the moose. And so at some point, I recognize, where is the moose going to go? <laughs> like, it's got nowhere to go. We've completely flanked it and surrounded it, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it snarls, it hoofs, it raises up, and it charges, Okay. At this point, I just spin 180 degrees, and I've gone down a road, and now I'm having to run up a road with my two-year-old, who I think at this point is, like, flapped back, like, hanging backwards, and I'm just running for my life, okay? Like, I, like, I may get us all killed, right? I, I am I'm an absolute idiot, all right? Thankfully, it charged off in a different direction, and no one got hurt. But for me, it was such a picture of what sin does. It just lures us in closer and closer and closer. It enamors us. We're amazed by the scent and a seeming sense of enjoyment, and then it just rises up and it can crush us. I got out that day. I'm really, really thankful. I'm alive and my child's alive, right? But there's a moment for me of like, what the Sam Hill, right? How did I not see that? How did I not grasp that? And why is it we do the same thing with sin all the time? think that we can manage it, think that we're in control. In reality, we are not in control. And the question is, what do we do? I love this story in Judges. I think Samson is a classic representative of the entire people group in this entire biblical era. And frankly, I think he's a great representative for us as well. You have all kinds of potential. You guys, as students at Blinn and at AM, have all kinds of gifting and ability and power. And the question is not about your potential and not about your capabilities, but it's most about your character. Will that be the thing that undoes you? Because it likely won't be your potential and it likely won't be your abilities. It will be your character. No matter whatever walk of life that you want to walk, the question will be how far will your character take you? And are you consistently building a pattern in your life of blowing past these roadblocks? So what we're going to do this morning as we wrap up is that we're going to give you guys an opportunity to respond to the Lord in communion. And so the band's going to come back up. We're going to have an opportunity to let you guys go before the Lord and just to process a little bit. Judges 16 is meant to be shock and awe heavy. 
It's not like light and fluffy, right? Uh, it's, it's hard to hear. Because there's a reality that I think every single one of us connects ourselves a little bit like Samson, and maybe in a different way. That there's something in our lives that we are blowing past roadblocks, we're blowing, blowing past the command of God, the counsel of his people. We're probably already experiencing the circumstances of life that are meant to be painful, and maybe the pain itself. And my question and my hope for you guys this morning is that you'll have an opportunity to respond today and just to come before the Lord and confess that. And that's what communion is meant to be, an opportunity for us as we come together as a church body, if we know Jesus Christ, to come before and to take the elements as a reminder that Christ's body was broken and his blood was spilled for us. That in the midst of our depravity, in the midst of our weakness, that Christ paid the penalty for those things so that they don't have to be a millstone that's hung around our neck and a guilt that consumes us and crushes us. But a reminder that Christ has paid the penalty for all of our sins, no matter where we've been, no matter who we've been with, no matter what we've done, what we've seen, or what we've said. That Christ has taken that penalty so that we could be brought anew. The amazing beauty of what happens here at the end of Judges 16 is that Samson, in verse 28, will call upon the Lord. Then Samson called the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time. Samson's going to return to the Lord, and what we want to do as an act of communion, as an opportunity with communion, is give you an opportunity to come before the Lord and, in a sense, return and confess that you are not right in your own eyes. That we need a Savior, we need an enabler, and we need help. We need a rescuer, we need a redeemer, we need one who can come to bring us out of darkness and into life. And the beauty of what happens at the end of Samson's life as he does that is that he will experience a victory here. Samson, verse 29, Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and braced himself against them, uh, one with his right hand, the other with his left. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all of his might so that the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. And so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his entire life. This isn't a suicide, this is a martyrdom. And the defining moment at the end of Samson's life shows him that where the greatest strength is found is in our dependence not in our self-will, not in our self-effort, but coming before God, recognizing I'm not right in my own eyes, that I need you, I need a Savior. I need someone who's paid this penalty for my sins, and I'm desperately needing of you, even as I move forward, that my entire strength is not based on my heritage, it's not based on my gifting, but it's based on my dependence before a sovereign God. In that moment, Samson will do more with his death than he ever did in his life. In a moment of weakness, he'll do more than he ever did in his strength. In a moment of dependence, he'll do more than he ever did with his independence. And the question is, will you choose independence or will you choose dependence? Will you choose strength or will you choose weakness? We want to give you an opportunity to come before the Lord this morning and to rest up and wrap up on that idea. Will you recognize that you are not right in your own eyes and that you need a Savior and that you need someone?